When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf. How about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. This is the GM Shuffle. The chances of you hitting a quarterback are are really slim. They're very slim, actually. Uh, being successful, especially in a draft where we know there's not an elite player. There's no easy one. You're listening to the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and VSIN. Here is Femi Abebefe. It is the biggest day on the sports calendar here, the opening round of the Masters, opening day for baseball, but we know what you're really after. It is the GM Shuffle podcast with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and VSIN. I'm your host, Femi Abebefe. Michael Hey, here we are in April, our first podcast of April. It is draft month, and we are ready to roll, buddy. You know, it's so good, especially hearing that Masters music. I mean, this is just four days of, of wishing, you know, you could play golf. I, I, I was awesome at Tiger Woods golf, but not at regular golf. So <laughs> Weren't we all? I enjoyed, oh, man, I was dominating at Tiger Woods. I could shoot 58 on Pebble. It was unbelievable. <laughs> I can't play worth a lick now. But uh, anyway, I'm excited for it. Excited for it. You know, we're in the home stretch here of the offseason for the NFL. We're still mm-hmm. getting a lot of action, so it's fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun here, so always to keep track of our fun as we document things here on the GM Shuffle podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, tweet at us. We love to hear questions from you guys at MLombardiNFL on Twitter. At Femi Abebefe is where you can find me, our producer Stephen Bond, with us as always on the ones and twos here with our show. I mean, the biggest news and notes here from the NFL has to be what we saw over the last couple days. The Buffalo Bills agreeing to an extension with their star wide receiver, Stefan Diggs. Get this, Michael. Four years, $104 million extension that includes $70 million in guarantees. I mean, cha-ching if you're Stefan Diggs here as he now gets his money like some other receivers in the NFL. Well, I think he's got to thank uh, Adams. I think he's got to thank thank Tyreek Hill. And I think he's got to thank all these. That's why DK Metcalf is sitting there counting his money. I mean, it's going to come to him eventually. But look, he had two years left on his contract. He's got $12 million in paragraph five, none of it guaranteed. And he's got $12 million in, in next year's contract, none of it guaranteed. So it's easy for the Bills to kind of tear that up. Lowers cap number, which was close to $18 million. Give him a bunch of guaranteed money, spread out the money over four years, and basically get him up to par with other players. I mean, this is an easy – the one thing I think fans can understand is it's really easy to do a contract for a great player. When Diggs, the numbers he's been able to accumulate, you can do those contracts fairly easily because you can put him in the right ballpark. He's a top five receiver. He belongs here, and here's where it should go. And then you can peel back the layers of the Adams contract, the Hill contract, and really deal with reality, not what the media is reporting the contract to be worth. So (laughs) for the Bills who need cap room, I mean, it makes perfect sense, and they know that he's going to be – he's entering 29 years old going into this season. You know, for him to play at 30, 32 is not going to be an issue. So 
Look, Paul Warfield, you know, the great wide receiver of the Cleveland Browns, he got traded for the third pick overall in the draft back in 1970, and he was entering, and he was 29 years old. Now, he didn't get any kind of this scratch, you know, even Mm -hmm. after averaging 20 yards (laughs) a catch. But the reality of it is, is, you know, you still have a lot of, as a receiver, 29, you're not that old. Yeah, Stephon Diggs now the fourth highest paid wide receiver in terms of annual average in the NFL. Tyreek Hill hit that $30 million per year number. Devontae Adams just under that. And then you have DeAndre Hopkins about $27.25 million for the Arizona Cardinals. And then there's Stephon Diggs, $26 million annually there. Diggs, I mean, he's worth it, right? I mean, because like when you watch him play and what Josh Allen has been able to do ever since they traded for Stephon Diggs. He's really helped him take that next step there to where, in my opinion, this was a no-brainer deal for the Buffalo Bills. Well, I think there's no doubt. You know, and I think when we start throwing those numbers around, I, I think eventually once these contracts are in the league office and they're analyzed, those numbers will definitely look a lot different than what we're talking about. I mean, it's never the same than what we're reading because the agents control the narrative. I mean, it's their job to put it out there that he got, you know, that this player got, oh, my God, he got all this money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is what he's got. You know, Tyree Kill got 120, you know, fully guaranteed of what he got of Tyreek Hill's contract, for example, fully guaranteed is $52 million of the 120. Now, it's been reported he's got total guarantees of 72. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and his average per year and all those things. But sometimes these numbers come down. But DJ Moore got paid. I mean, Mike Williams got paid. You know, Cooper got paid in the sense that, you know, he got redone his contract in extended years. I think it's on a one-to-one year basis. And then, of course, Devontae Adams has got a ton of money guaranteed so I think when, you know, one thing what happens, one gets paid, they all start to get paid. We've seen it in the quarterback market. That's why the yeah. Russell Wilson fem is going to be an interesting contract once it comes in. How important is that from a general manager standpoint and just from a front office standpoint to pay those guys who go about their business the right way? I mean, Stefan Diggs, one of the hardest workers in the league, because it almost to me, it feels like this is kind of adding to that culture there in terms of, okay, if you do your job, if you come in, if you're reliable, you're accountable, and you produce on the field, you can get paid. How important is that from the front office to kind of send that message to the other guys in the locker room? I think it's the only way to do it. You don't do it when you sign it, when you do what Jacksonville did, which is sign all these other players. <laughs> the same, you know, and that's you, what you don't want to pay to Christian Kirk $20 million or whatever the hell he's getting. <laughs> you know, yeah. So, but I, I think when you're looking at this thing, you're sitting there saying, okay, here we go. You know, I mean, I'm going to reward the guys that we can get paid. And I think if you're Russell Wilson, 34 years old, you're sitting down there, you know, you're, you're a free agent in 2024. The Broncos are going through this sale, so I think some of this will affect what they do. Mm-hmm. You know, I think some of that, you know, how much do, can they actually get into it? What's the ground rules in terms of the sale? Are they holding back from cash? They're going to sell the team probably in May or June of this year. Will the new owner want to incur? I, I, I kind of think it's not an issue, but maybe that's what is holding up some of this until they get the new ownership group to handle. Yeah, no, you figure that like when you're a new owner, you're going to probably want to come in and be able to sign off on a deal like that because Russell Wilson likely going to be that fully guaranteed contract that we saw Cleveland sign Deshaun Watson to. So if you're going to, if you're going to want that, yeah, yeah, you're going to, you're going to want to have some say at least if you're an owner uh, before that deal gets inked there. So you can understand why Russell Wilson right now, after that trade has not been signed by the Broncos, but that extension is going to come at some point throughout this offseason. You would have to imagine. 
no doubt. I think it's definitely, and, and I'm sure it's in the works, and I think it'll come out ra- rather rather sooner than later, probably right before the draft. I, I think that's when it might. And if it go, and, and if not, it'll happen in May. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't see any of that. I think I don't think it's going to. Again, like I said, I don't think it's going to be a problem because the reality of it is 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 that you know you know where he's going to play, you know where he's going to stand. Now, I guess the question you could make is how much do you think he's going to play past 36, 37? I think that's the ultimate conversation you got to have. Well, I think his goal is to play until 45 like Tom Brady. Now, well, whether I mean, that's possible not or not. Why not collect the coin? Yeah, why not keep <laughs> collecting the coin? <laughs> yeah, you might as well if you're Russell Wilson there for the Broncos. They're hoping that that works out for them. Back to Buffalo, though, Michael, because I wanted to ask you, because, I mean, ever since the end of the regular season, or end of the playoffs, I should say, I mean, I've been saying that Buffalo is probably going to be the best team in the league in 2022. I know that's a hot take for a lot of people out there after the Bills, who looked like the best team in the playoffs, if not for those 13 seconds at Arrowhead Stadium Mm -hmm. at the end of that game. Uh, Do you agree with me? Buffalo, best team uh, as we head into this new season? Well, I mean, look, their offseason was they needed to improve their pass rush. I mean, one of the things I think they didn't do as good as they needed to do last year, you know, Basham wasn't as good a rusher. I mean, he'll be better next year. He was only, a, you know, Roussard, uh, the kid they drafted in the first round from Miami, yep. Greg Rosari, I think his name, I, I always mispronounce his yeah, name. Gregory but- Rousseau. Rousseau, you know, thank you, fam. That thank for great assist there. I appreciate it. I got, I got it. you, but, baby. I, I just gotta lob it up, man. Throw it down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm so bad at names. But anyway, uh and then, you know, I think Von Miller's going to determine what they do. You know, they get White back off the injury. Look, I, I think they've improved. They've get, I don't, I'm not in love with Saffold at right guard. I think they've helped mm-hmm. their offensive line a little bit. He gives them some experience. Gabriel Davis, to me, is an outstanding. I mean, some of the, the plays he made down the stretch and with catching the football was yeah. outstanding. McKenzie, this young kid that they, they, they signed him, he was going to be a free agent. I think they are a really good team. They're going to be hard to play. And, and when that quarterback plays like he did – down the stretch from the second half of the Tampa game where he was running the football in the single wing. Mm-hmm. My Lord, his, they're hard. I mean, yeah, I, I could easily place a bet on them to win the whole damn thing. Yeah, plus 650 over at DraftKings. They are the favorites to win the Super Bowl here. And it's there's a lot to love with this Buffalo team. Really good front office. Good head coach there with Sean McDermott there. And the, I mean, well, I mean, if he can manage 16, if he can manage 13 seconds. I was going to say. Know, before, <laughs> before we put him in the coaching hall of fame here, can we at least get him? To, you know, Maybe he needs to play a little Madden, you know, so he can understand how to play those 13 seconds. That's what all the kids are doing these days. You learn those coaching techniques yeah, learn, from, uh, they, from they the Madden it. video games. <laughs> Absolutely. Why not? I mean, it's it's practical. It's like what happened with what, you know, like my son, Mix is going to be an offensive coordinator. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you out learn? here in Vegas, he's, <laughs> out in Vegas, but he's not going to call plays. Josh McDaniels is going to do that. But mm. how do you learn to call plays? How do you do that? Well, most coaches through their careers, typically the way they learn how to call plays is they get their play sheet in front of them on Saturday night and they watch a college game. Right. They watch mm-hmm. a college game. And the college game, you know, whoever's doing the Herbie says, you know, and and Fowler, they're watching the Saturday night game and they're sitting there and, okay, it's second and four. They look at their sheet. Okay, here's what I want to call. You get into that kind of rhythm of calling the game. The ball's on the left hash. It's on the left hash. Okay, they've played nickel. You got you got to it's almost like a fight trainer's, you know. Yeah. And that's the best way to do it. That's how you do it. You know, you spend your Saturday night locked in your room. You turn the sound off, which I typically do anyway. But the reality of it, you sound it and you get your play sheet out and you start calling games. Yeah, that's, that's, and that's why Madden is so good, because you're basically simulating how you would manage the game. 
You know, it's like like all these new coaches in the league, what they should do is they should have a guy, which like Chicago hired a guy, uh, mm. New York hired. They should hire situational guys, put together tape, and then every day in the offseason spend an hour of going through, okay, here's where we are in this situation. What will we do? How will we play it? An hour a day. And all of a sudden, you're going to get really good at it because you're going to have practical experience of it. You're not going to end up like like my man Zach Zach. Zach Taylor, which, okay, yeah. you know, Perrine's on the field, don't substitute, no big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It cost us a Super Bowl. If we'd have put, if we'd have put uh, a Mixon back there, we might have been, he might have got the first down. Mm-hmm. No, I, and I've always wondered that, too. But it's, honestly, that's really fascinating that you even suggest that. Like, that's what these some of these guys are doing in terms of following along with the college football plays to get the situational kind of things down there. But I've always been curious as to why teams don't have those in-game specialist there because it seems like a such a blind spot for a lot of these coaches and when I watch it on my TV it's I can tell me okay it's easy for me to make that decision because I don't have the pressure the atmosphere yeah. all the things that are going on on an NFL sidelines I mean it is organized chaos so it's almost like why not outsource those tests so that the head coach is just in charge of the timeouts and if you're the play caller you're also calling the plays and not having to worry about should we go for it on fourth and one should we challenge this here should we do these other things because these are game altering decisions in a league where there's not a whole lot that separates the best from the worst yeah but i think what the problem is is it's not an independent standalone operation it has to be practiced on wednesday thursday friday it has mm-hmm. to be practiced within that situation and it's predicated on the opponent it's not predicated on what what the situation is that's where i think there's a separation between analytics and the actual game that's going on you know it's predicated like uh, in this new book i'm i'm working on and i'm i'm i got uh, i'm writing up the last 100 players that what i consider the top 100 players of all time in the nfl some a couple of them aren't even in the hall of fame but i have them in my top 100 and on every player, I, I try to write up a, a little bit of a vignette on what they're doing and, and how they are and try to tell a story about the player. And obviously the 58 championship game between the Giants and the Colts is, is resonates with a lot of these guys because most of these Hall of Famers played in that game. But this is a perfect example of situational football as it relates. So the Colts have the great Gino Marchetti, who I don't know, most of the viewers are way too young to remember Gino. Mm-hmm. Gino was a tremendous defensive end. He went to the college, he went to the University of San Francisco where they were the first team, Femi, to it really integrate their college team. They were dominant. They were 9 and 0. They didn't have a close game that whole season. The closest team that that, that came to him was Fordham and they got only got to 6 points. They out they only gave up 85 points the whole year. He played offensive tackle. They didn't go and play in the Orange Bowl because they didn't because Ali Matson was on the team, Hall of Famer. Bob St. Clair was on the team, Hall of Famer. And, and obviously, Gino was. And so they didn't go to the Orange Bowl because the Orange Bowl said, you can come play here, but Bert Toller and Ali are not allowed to play because of the discrimination. So the players said, screw you, we're done. We ain't, going, we ain't taking our team. They, they dropped football at San Francisco. So then Marchetti becomes a Baltimore Colt. He shifts from offensive line to defensive line. He's one of the most dominant players in the era. In the 58 championship game, the, the Giants have the football. They're winning 17 to 14. They're trying to run it out. They're in two tight ends and three backs in the backfield. Typically, in that situation, they always ran to their left, which would have been the Giants, which would have been the Colts' right. But on second down, they ran to the right. They kind of mixed up their tendencies and they ran and they got five yards. So now they're facing a third and three. 
They line up in the same formation, and they do exactly what they did on the play before they run right at Marchetti. Marchetti goes to make the tackle. He tackles the guy. He gets his leg caught underneath of him. Big Daddy Lipskit slants on top of it. He breaks two bones in his body, screams. Wow. The official places the ball on the ground, and to giant players, they feel like he placed it six, nine inches too short. To, to the Colts, they thought he placed it perfectly. My point here is everybody left the stadium saying, why in the hell did they run the ball at Marchetti? Right? Like, why did they run it at him? You can't block him. He was unblockable. Why didn't they run the other way? So situations play so much involved into the analytics and into the game management that it becomes really critical. And so, you know, I think that's why you have to kind of peel it back and it becomes a weekly thing. Okay, we got J.J. Watt over here at right tackle against our right, uh, at right at left defensive end against our, we're not running the ball when we need it. We're going to go over here. You follow me? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, anytime you can run the football at a nine-time first-team All-Pro with a game on the line, you just got to do it there. Uh, Michael, <laughs> we're going to take a quick break here. I think Gino was like 13 <laughs> times All-Pro. I mean, like, <laughs> and, and you're too, way too young. You grew up at, you know, Gino had the greatest hamburger joint on the East Coast called Gino's. Oh, you know, I, it was a chain all over. It was the first. It was the first fast food chain I ever went to as a kid. Tell you what, I got an appetite for some burgers here. But let's take a quick break on the other side. Get to some news and notes in the NFL, including a trade in the first round of the draft. All right. Anytime you're on the golf course, you always hear the phrase "hit it long and hit it straight." Well, as somebody who's a novice to the game of golf, a new person, I wanted to make sure I had the best equipment possible. So. As a novice golfer, I went and hit up our friends over at PXG because they have an all-new driver called the Black Ops. I mean, my man Chris over in Henderson has hooked me up with a phenomenal driver that's built to my game. My new game that doesn't really do much of anything on the course, but it has what I need in terms of the club head speed and the kind of grip that I need to go out there and be the best to my ability. I mean, this is music to ears to any golfer, whether you're a novice like myself or if you've been playing the game for decades. The PXG Black Ops driver is a breakthrough in driver technology. It's a complete and total victory in golf club engineering unlike anything you've ever seen before. Black Op drivers are adjustable to deliver a combined MOI of 10,000 plus for unreal forgiveness. That's just ridiculously high. So what you got to do Go check out the PXG Black Ops Driver. You'll be as impressed with it as I am. Learn more and get free shipping on all equipment at pxg.com slash gmshuffle and use code gmshuffle at checkout. That's pxg.com slash gmshuffle, code gmshuffle for free shipping on all equipment, pxg.com slash gmshuffle, code gmshuffle. Michael, we saw a trade in the first round yeah. of the NFL draft, and it, it wasn't in the top 10, but it was interesting nonetheless between the Philadelphia Eagles and the New Orleans Saints. The Saints are acquiring the Eagles' 2022 first-round pick, the 16th overall selection there in this draft. So the Saints now have two picks in the first round. The Eagles, they move back to be able to get another first-round pick in next year's draft. And I saw you tweeting about this earlier. Big fan of this trade in terms of what GM Howie Roseman's doing out there in Philadelphia. Well, I, I like it because I felt all along, I do WIP radio every Friday morning at 7, and I said on the show a month ago that I think I felt like the Eagles would trade one of these picks because – this is not a talented draft. This is not a draft that's just booming with 
players at all the positions. And so, you know, even though you have three ones and everybody loves it, right? Everybody loves you having all, you know, as yeah. Jerry West told me back in 1992, they're fool's gold. These first <laughs> round picks can be fool's gold because, you, you know, you don't know really what you're going to get and how good is the player that you're drafting. You know, everybody thinks he's great, you know, and like I've said many times, I mean, the Ravens get A's every draft, you know, even though their team's not great. They get an A every time, you know, so, <laughs> but what good's the A if, if, if the players aren't good. So I thought it was really smart for Philadelphia to cash it in, you know, put themselves next year when the quarterback class appears to be much stronger. They'll have another year to see what Hurts can do, and it buys them some time. And for the Saints, you know, the Saints are trying to build their team, get their team up to speed, and the mentality in New Orleans has been since Sean Payton got there is we'll figure out how to get more picks next year. You know, they've been on that credit card program for a long time, <laughs> yeah. and this kind of fits in. No, no, no I, I agree with what Philadelphia is doing here in terms of this draft. And and honestly, like I think that seeing another year from Jalen Hurts and not pressing the button one year too early in terms of these quarterbacks is a really good way to go about this. I mean, they still have two first-round picks, so you can still build a really good team around Jalen Hurts and an NFC East division that is not on lockdown by any means. I mean, Dallas won it last year, but they're not really a big-time favorite like a Tampa Bay or so. So I think the Eagles can definitely contend in that division. I mean, the playoffs with Hurts last year, so we'll see if they can be able to add on to that and maybe make another run at a division crown here. For the Saints side of things, because I was really curious when I saw this trade about what was the thought process behind it for New Orleans, because there's no bona fide quarterback to go after. They re-signed Jameis Winston to be their starter this year, but Jameis isn't really the guy that I'm sure that they're thinking about in terms of long-term behind center. So what is it that the Saints really liked about this draft where they felt that they needed to get a second first-round pick? Well, the draft is strong with offensive linemen, you know, and the draft is is got the depth there. And so I think what it did was put them in position. You know, they, they lose – uh, Armstead, their starting left tackle, mm -hmm. right? And so that has always been one thing about Mickey Loomis and Sean Payton since they've been together. They have always been about building the lines, you know, and this draft has corners in it too. So the two positions that the Saints need the most, I think, are offensive line. I mean, they got Jace, James Hurst, a kid from North Carolina who was in Baltimore. They're going to have him as the left tackle. That won't last long. I mean, that's not going to work. You're not going to be a power run team with James Hurst. And so, you know, they need other corners. They signed P.J. Williams back. You know, mm. they still have Lattimore. They got the kid they drafted in the third round from Stanford. Uh, yep. But they need corners, you know, and they need more defensive players. So I think it puts them in position. I mean, they signed Andy Dalton and paid him as a backup. They signed Jameis Winston, and they've got Ian Book on their team. Okay, so they got three. Everybody thinks they did this to get a quarterback, but I, I don't see it that way. I see it to get a defensive, a defensive player or an offensive lineman. That's how I see it. And maybe even a receiver. I mean, you could easily see them getting another receiver. I mean, you know, maybe it'll allow them to move Michael Thomas on because I'm sure Michael Thomas is bitching like a nut about his contract even <laughs> I mean, though they did it. We haven't seen him in two years. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he – but do you think that's going to stop him from bitching about his contract? Oh, of course not. There's no chance, right? So, you know, right – you know, so you know he's coming. You know, he's loaded mm -hmm. up. Right now he's – right now as I look at it, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. He's the, he's the ninth bet paid receiver averaging, you know, averaging just, you know, around $19 million a year. He, you know, yeah. he's going to want to jump himself up. So maybe they draft a receiver. I, I think it just puts them in position to give them more flexibility. It's fascinating from a philosophical standpoint. Do you really agree with using a first-round pick 
from next year to move up into a draft, even if you're not taking a quarterback? Because I've always thought that if you're moving up in the draft is to take a quarterback because that's the most valuable position. The fact that they're doing this to take a position player is a really curious decision in terms of my opinion. It, it is. I mean, and you, you just hope that you're, you're counting on that pick not being a, a top five pick. I mean, the one thing the NFL has not done, which I think they should do, is lottery protect their picks. You know, if you would have said to the Eagles, look, we will give you this pick uh, and we'll give you the two in 2024, but it's got to be lottery protected. It can't be in the top 10. If it's in the top 10, we'll give you our one the next year, you know, and we'll lottery protect that. But the NFL has not been able to pull those deals off. What scares you about this is say Winston gets hurt, say Dalton's horrible. All of a sudden, if you're Howie Roseman, you're sitting there saying, hey, we're going to have a top five pick, you know, and you might have a top five pick if Winston stays healthy. You don't know. Yeah. So that there's a little bit of, of a risk, and for Howie to do it with the Saints without, you know, the Saints, I don't know what their over under win total is, but if you're Howie sitting in his office in Philadelphia, you're thinking, okay, maybe they win seven, eight. I could have a, I could have a top twelve pick, you know. I could maybe yeah. have the best I could probably, the worst I'll get is a top twenty four pick, whatever. But you, you know, that risk reward makes it worthwhile. Yeah, Saints win total right now at DraftKings is eight. So you're right, they're seven, eight. It's kind of be where they'll be hovering in 2022. We saw another trade involving some draft picks, but this also involved a player in division, which was kind of the fascinating thing to me. But Miami Dolphins trading wide receiver Devontae Parker and a 2022 fifth round pick to New England for a 2023 third round selection. Your thoughts on Parker now up in Foxborough? Well, I, I think this was basically J.C. Jackson for Parker. So they know they're going to get a compensatory pick for J.C. Jackson in that mm -hmm. draft. That'll be a third-round pick. So basically they took J.C. Jackson's value and they turned it into Parker for two years at a really cheap contract. Uh, this, is, this is a Roy Hinson trade. You know who Roy Hinson is, Sam? No, I'm not, I'm not familiar. Okay, Roy, this is – okay, let, uh, let me – School me up. Through my struggles uh, – School you up. Through my struggles and through my – Rehab with the Philadelphia 76ers. The Sixers <laughs> had the first pick overall in a draft one year. Mm -hmm. First pick overall. And they, in their brilliance, they decided to trade it to Cleveland for Roy Henson and some other things. And you say, why? Roy Henson was a power forward from Rutgers, the left-handed, pretty athletic guy. Why? Because Roy Henson always played great against Philly. Now, he didn't play great against the other teams, but he always played great against Philly. So for Philly, they were getting a player that played great against them. Mm -hmm. This Parker deal is a Roy Henson deal. Parker has always played good against the Patriots, including when they had Stephon Gilmore playing corner. He, beat, he, he used to take Gilmore to school. And in the game in 19, when they really needed to make plays, Parker made a couple critical plays in that last game of the season when everybody thought the, the Dolphins were tanking, and yet they beat the Patriots in Foxborough, which cost them home field advantage, and they had to play the wild card round, and yep. they lost Brady's last game. So Parker has always played well, and he's talented. He's just not durable, and he has not been dependable. And those two things he's got to change for New England at, at really no risk for them. Like I said, they trade J.C. Jackson for him. Yeah, no, I mean, to me, as a Dallas Cowboys fan, I look at this trade and I'm like, why were the Cowboys only able to get a day three pick for Amari Cooper and the, the New England Patriots? The answer to, to that like, is money. Like, it, again with the money, again with the money. The answer is that the money. Nobody wanted the Amari's $20 million. Yeah. This kid had five and he, this kid was going to make like $11 million over the next two years, maybe 12 That's modest compared to this market.
Yeah, no, and, and I think the fact that everybody knew that Dallas was also under the gun to try to get under the salary cap there right before the mm-hmm. new league year probably took away some of that leverage. Because Parker, I'm looking at his stats, only one 1,000-yard receiving season in his career as a first-round pick here. He's been underwhelming based on where he was drafted. So the fact that he was able to get a day-two pick versus Amari Cooper, who's been productive, more productive than Devontae Parker, that goes for a day-three. But that... I digress. I don't get me started on the Cowboys because that's going to be a whole nother thing. Uh, a, a wide receiver that could be on the move here in the coming days. We'll see now, pending on what this team decides to do. But Seattle wide receiver DK Metcalf, he's played three years in the league, Michael, meaning that he's now eligible for that massive extension. And I'm sure DK's people, DK himself, have seen <laughs> the wide receiver money that's been going around this offseason here. And teams are starting to call Seattle to see if, hey, you don't really have the quarterback situation all settled. Maybe you want to part with your receiver before paying him a monster extension. Yeah, I think that's really what the plan has to – I mean, if you're, if you're John Schneider, you're sitting there saying, are we going to pay this guy $20 million, $22 million a year? Because that's what he's going to want. Mm-hmm. You know, are we going to be able to do that? Now, he's got 29 touchdowns in three years. I mean, you pay for touchdowns. There's no denying that. I mean, that's incredible, right? He can get the ball in the end zone way better than I ever thought he could. I thought he was a one – coming out, I thought he was a one-route runner. I thought he was a vertical, outside-the-numbers, run hitches, run goes, run comebacks. I thought that any change of direction, you know, Colorado routes or, or kind of stutter – was going to be a, but his vertical ability was impressive. Last year, you know, had he did not, even though he had 12 touchdowns, his yards per catch was way down at 12.9. So I think if somebody, the Jets are rumored to be talking about it, which makes mm-hmm. sense for the Jets, right? The Jets have four more years to get with Wilson under, under basically no, no salary cap implications. So if you're Joe Douglas, you're trying to collect as much talent as you can, even if it's expensive, because you know, once you get this around it, you should be able to maintain it while it gives Wilson a chance to grow and go forward. It's the best time to add talent to your team. So I could see it. Now, if you're Schneider, you're sitting there saying, look, I'm going to hold out for more. I mean, every yeah. team thinks it's going to be an economical deal like Tyreek Hill, but this kid's 24 years old. He's entering really the prime of his career. You got to, you know, he was second team pro, he made Pro Bowl, he was second team All Pro in 20. You know, those are important things to consider. So I think if you're Schneider, saying no now will help you get more later. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense there. DK Metcalf, 29 receiving touchdowns through three seasons. He's been really productive here. Uh, the NFL Draft, Michael's coming up in exactly three weeks from today. Can't wait. And we're going to discuss that on the other side. Start to talk about some of these draft props and some possible trades and quarterbacks here on the other side. It's the GM Shuffle Podcast. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. I mean, the second round of the playoffs have been absolutely phenomenal, and if you really like a team, you can bet on them for the futures markets, maybe some conference finals MVPs as the conference finals approach, or how about NBA finals MVP? And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet five bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code SHUFFLE. That's code SHUFFLE for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just five bucks only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. 
Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please pay responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Well, Michael, the NFL Draft three weeks from today, and you wrote a VEASAN column here that will be coming up on VEASAN.com. Really yeah. interesting stuff here based on what you're seeing from the mock drafts from all the NFL Draft experts, the people who study this stuff throughout the year. And it was interesting because the Carolina Panthers are seen as one team that could go quarterback in the top 10 there. They're picking sixth overall, and ESPN's Todd McShay says that there's a little bit of pressure on Matt Rule to take a QB, and you, you kind of disagree with that. Why? Well, I mean, look, I think one of the things that we don't do enough of in football, and including, and I don't say this to throw stones at anyone, I don't think we spend enough time studying prior drafts. And I think that we are in the information business and personnel. And when you're in the information business, you better study the data. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the data and you understand the data that's been going on with quarterbacks since 1980, even if you go back to 2000, the chances of you hitting a quarterback are are really slim. They're very slim, actually, uh, being successful, especially in a draft where we know there's not an elite player. There's no easy one. I mean, in 1970, when Terry Bradshaw came out, he was the can't-miss player. The second can't-miss player, the guy who was supposed to be sensational, was Mike Phipps. That didn't work out so well, right? Yeah, I'm so, like, I've never heard of him, so clearly that didn't work out. You never heard out. of him. You, you never heard of him. Of course you didn't. You know, he was from Purdue. He was better than Bob Greasy, all that crap. So my point here is is when, you know, what, what McSh- and, and I love Todd McShay. I think Todd works hard. He does, he does his thing, you mm-hmm. know, and all that. But he says, hey, Matt Rule's on the hot seat, so he needs a quarterback. Like, to me, if you're on the hot seat, you're not taking a quarterback. Because if you draft Kenny Pickett or Malik Willis, they're going to be sitting next to, to Matt Rule. Last year, you know, Justin Fields didn't save Matt Nagy's job. Mitchell Trubisky didn't save John Fox's drop job. I mean, like, who? what quarterback saves your job that's a rookie? Now, normally teams that pick quarterbacks are their first year. They start then, and they build themselves into it. When you're in the third year, that guy ain't going to help you save your job. A left offensive tackle will save Matt Rule's job because it'll make everybody else better. He still needs a quarterback. But there's no guarantee that Kenny Pickett's going to come in and be a starter or be better than anybody on the team. So mm-hmm. for me, the logic is is really bad. You know, and so, it, it, again, in this book that I've been working on, I wrote a chapter about the draft, and, we, and I talked about how this mock draft uh, element really became in play. And it started back in – really, it started back in – in the 19 in 1958 when a, a writer for the press telegram in Long Beach Bob Kelly he was the voice of the Rams actually uh, independent press telegram he wrote in his column that the Rams the draft was always in in January then Femi and then it, the Rams were going to prepare their their for the next draft and then in June they were going to do their own mock draft basically pick the players at certain teams and that gave people the impetus to start the draft and then we had guys uh, like the Mancuso brothers, and then we had the drugstore list, and then eventually became Joel Bushman. That's how this phenomenon all started. Mm-hmm. And it's wonderful. However, you know, I don't think sometimes 
They, they go by need all the time. And what I wrote about today is they go by need when you better look at the horizontal board. And I tell a story about Ron Wolf <clears throat> and the horizontal board in the, in the column. Yeah, no, I think that's a really fascinating discussion here because Scott Fitterer is in his second year as a general manager for the Panthers, so he's not really on the hot seat. But I do kind of agree with what McShay is saying in terms of Matt Rule being on the hot seat. Now, whether that means they should take a quarterback is another discussion, but do you think that the Panthers' owner, David Tepper, would be patient enough to pass on a quarterback yet again because we saw the Panthers in on the Deshaun Watson trade talks. They've been in on the Matthew Stafford trade talks before he went to the LA Rams. Like clearly David Tepper wants to win and wants to win immediately and his path in terms of what he sees, the best path to do that is to get a quarterback. Do you think that they have the patience to wait once again? And let's say things go kind of similar to they went last year. Is Matt Rule there again in 2023 if he doesn't get that QB? I think Tepper is one of the smart people. He didn't make all this money without looking at the numbers and analyzing data. I mean, that's what he does for a living. That's why he's made mm -hmm. so much money. That's hedge why he's been guy. able. Yeah. He's a hedge fund guy. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, pissed uh, one of the co-workers when he was at a, one place, pissed him off so much that when he left, he bought that guy's property and tore down his house at like 50 million. Like he was going to prove his point, you know, like, this guy's <laughs> I mean, really the smart. Petty. <laughs> that yeah. just absolutely I, I mean, he's smart. And so when he goes back and looks at it from 1980 to 2005, there were 62 quarterbacks picked in the first round, counting the supplemental draft, you know, mm -hmm. and only eight of those guys started over 200 games. 25 started 100. 28 started over 80. I mean, there's not a lot of success. And 7 to 8% of those quarterbacks picked during that period, you would consider elite. So what you're saying with this data is you can pick them and he covers your your uh, your your team needs but what Federer said to me is the reason why people make all the mistakes in the in, in the draft is he said simply you know this will be an interesting because the tackle's the best player on the board he admits this mm -hmm. the tackle's going to be but we need a quarterback and at some point you have to take a shot especially in the top 10 no you don't Scott no you don't no you don't no you don't you're going to make a mistake yeah you you hate to force it I'll show you data of all these teams forcing it I'll give you names that'll make you throw up if you do that you are guaranteed to make a mistake, which is why all these teams have failed when they pick quarterbacks in the first round. Yeah, I mean, with that said, in terms of teams forcing it, and Scott Fitterer in the, your column there, in the quote that he gave out there on the Panthers' website, talks about you don't want to force it, but we know that this is the NFL. These teams feel a lot of pressure to take these quarterbacks, so people are going to force it. And that's why you're seeing almost that these quarterbacks are being elevated up these draft boards, not based on their overall talent. It's just based on the positional need and how valuable that position is here. And that's what you see a draft prop over at DraftKings. I mean, three and a half is what you're seeing. Three in terms of quarterbacks selected in the first round. And I know in your opinion, you think that none of these guys are really caliber of being selected in the first round. Because I think you have to put, I think you have to put verbiage next to the name. I mean, Mel and and Todd and everybody else who runs does draft. They don't have to. They just say this guy. You know, is this guy a? I know Kenny Pickett started forty nine games. Is this guy a legitimate starter in the mm. National Football League? And can he? Is he going to be in the top ten of his position? I don't think you can say that. I don't think you can watch the visual evidence. I mean, and I talked about this in the column. I mean, the great Ron Wolf, who's one of the best drafters of all time. I mean, he sat there. He's at the first pick in the draft at Tampa Bay. First pick ever for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Wolf was charged with the job. He became the vice president of operations. And so he's sitting there. The best player on his board is Leroy Selman. The best quarterback is, is uh, Richard Todd. 
So he's looking at his horizontal board saying, wait a minute, if I take the guy who's less over the guy who's the best player, it may give me a quarterback, but it doesn't make my team better. I think that's where Scott Federer is. When he turns down a left tackle at six to go pick a quarterback who's probably not better than some of the backups in the league, you just made a huge mistake. And, And you'll walk into your office and say, well, we got a good player. No, you didn't. You solve the need for the moment. (laughs) Like all these mock draft guys, they don't have, they don't stay around after the draft. They go home. It's like the people that they, they, they they go on the next year's. They never reevaluate last year's draft class. You know, it's funny. I tell a story in the book about we were in the draft room, Belichick's first draft. We're in the draft room and all of just the scouts are in the room. Dom Neely, Tom Dimitrov, Gary Horton, Ricky feature me. And I think that was really about it. And then, Belichick and Ernie, of course, you're in there. And so we start reading the players in the draft. And, and, and Dom's talking about Dom and Neely. He said, well, this player needs coaching. This player needs development. This player needs. And Belichick's like, wait a fucking minute. Every fucking player needs development. I mean, like, who doesn't need coaching? And his <laughs> point was this, okay? Like, every player needs coaching. Like, tell me the ones who don't. Like, we're going to coach them the best we can, mm-hmm. right? But don't use most times scouts will use this. They'll say, a player that plays well, Mac Jones played well, he got coaching, right? Justin Fields didn't play as well, he didn't get coaching. You know, so you basically are, you're right no matter what the evaluation is. And if the player you like turns out to be shitty, well, he didn't get enough coaching. Follow me? Yeah, I'm following. I'm following you. With that said, though, I mean, the quarterbacks, they're not the bell of the ball in this year's draft. Which one do you think is the best quarterback? You know, the, I think if I were to, you know, I think there's certainly there's talent in there. I think like Malik Willis is two years away from being a year away. The great Fran for sellers <laughs> yeah. line. I mean, I think he's two years away from being a year away. I think Pickett's a nice player. I think Pickett's a backup player. I think Pickett would be, you know, a, a, a nice backup quarterback come in, you know, but in terms of playing 17 games, driving the football from the pocket, the guy that, that interests me the most is Ryder. He's so inconsistent that it's hard mm-hmm. to look at him and say he's, a, he's going to be a, a starter. To me, he has potential. I would be hesitant if I could get him. I mean, think about this, Tim. I mean, when John Butler took over in, in, in the, the, the San Diego Chargers, when he left Buffalo, God rest his soul, the great John Butler, you know, he's sitting there with the first pick in the draft, and Michael Vick's coming out. And he thought Breeze was the better option. So he traded down, he gets LT, and he gets Breeze at the top of the second round. It's it's one of the great draft halls in in recent memory. No doubt, right? So, But he did it because his vertical board said that was the best thing to do. His horizontal board, excuse me, that was the best thing to do. And that's where Scott Federer, a young general manager, he's got to look at all these teams that have made mistakes because they've been looking at their vertical board and not their horizontal board. Yeah, Desmond Ritter out of Cincinnati. He won quite a bit there. I mean, two straight New Year's Six games, including leading Cincinnati to the college football playoff, the first group of five team to go to the CFP. That's a name that we've been hearing quite a bit over the last two and a half weeks. It'll be fascinating to see where he ends up in three weeks from now. Let's take another quick break here, Michael. But when we come back, I know you're hungry. Let's talk Masters Meals, Champions Dinner Edition here on the GM Shuffle Podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, Michael, I know that this is the moment that a lot of people have been waiting for here, our Masters Champions Dinner menu. For those who don't know, the winner of the previous year's Masters Tournament gets to host the Masters Champions Dinner that Tuesday of Masters Week, and they get to pick the menu. So Hideki Matsuyama got to pick his menu for this year on Tuesday. So, Michael, we thought it'd be a little bit of fun if we gave our dinner menus. Yeah. And let's start with you. What would you have? It's an appetizer, two main courses, and a dessert. But what would your Masters Champions Dinner menu be? Well, it would be all it would be all Italian. I mean, it would be <laughs> okay. somewhere. You know, there would be a, the first course would be some form of a zucchini blossom, where you know it was really done perfectly with 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 kind of ricotta cheese in between the zucchini blossom. Then we would go into a a, a, a kind of a lasagna, a bechamel lasagna. My wife makes it really good, actually, where it it's not filled with meat; it's kind of lighter. And then for dinner. I think a, a veal melonese because it'll have the salad on top. Mm -hmm. And and if you could get like veal melonese at some of the great restaurants in, in the country, you know, it's so good. And then for dessert, obviously, I'd have vanilla ice cream. Vanilla ice cream to wash it down. I, I like that. That's tasty. Uh, we, we get our fix of the carbs. We're involved, which is what you need to go out there and hit uh, on Augusta. So that's a, a very, very tasty meal. Here's what my menu would look like. Uh -oh. here for, so yeah, uh oh, indeed. <laughs> Get ready here, Michael. For the appetizer, we're, we're mixing and matching, but it's a very surf and turf kind of dream scenario here. But the appetizer, we're going to go with a crispy fried calamari with a little bit of Ooh. garlic chipotle aioli sauce and some spicy nice. marinara sauce as well to kind of kick things off here. Calamari, in my opinion, is on the appetizer Mount Rushmore. So I got to have it here <laughs> for my Masters Champions dinner. And the main course, I'll give you two options for the people that like the, the turf. You get a 16th ounce New York strip steak here with a little bit of asparagus on the side, some macaroni and cheese if you want that. Or if you're not a meat lover, how about the surf action, 10 ounce Maine lobster tail, some seasonal veggies and garlic mashed potatoes. Now for the sides, you can mix and match whichever way you want them. You can have it your way. But for the dessert, we're going to go with a warm brownie, vanilla ice cream with some hot fudge poured all across it, Michael. We're going to get down that and dirty awesome. for the dessert here. It, it's almost kind of like the triple chocolate meltdown, but better is how we're doing it. And that will be the conclusion of the Masters Champions dinner. That, that, I mean, that sounds really good. You know, it's almost like uh, you, you almost I think they had a master's champion dinner and, and the scene in Goodfellas when they're all in jail and they're all having dinner and they're making the steaks and the sauce and the gravy and all that. <laughs> so that, that sounds pretty good. I mean, there's nothing better than a great steak and going to a great oh, steakhouse. It, it, there's nothing better than that, whether it's New York strip, whether it's prime rib, whether it's that boned in, you know, ribeye, which has the long, long mm -hmm. thing. You know, depending on the herbs, I, I tell you what, if I went barbecue, there's a there is a if you ever watch Chef's Table on Netflix, there's this lady from Texas. She's got to be in her 80s now. Hopefully she's still alive. Uh, she does the pit at this one restaurant and outside of kind of near College Station. It's on the it's on the Chef's Table. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. She's like 80 years old and she moves the coals around. I think Ooh. I might have her come in. If I was going to go off the beaten track, I might have her come in and do barbecue. <laughs> yeah, I know Jordan Spieth did barbecue when he won the Masters uh, about a several years ago there over at Augusta. Real quick, Michael, we have Pop Culture Minute, which 
is kind of turning into Sopranos in 60 seconds. We joked about that the first episode. So, Michael, <laughs> no, I've you s- can shift it anywhere you want to go with it. <laughs> oh, oh, no. I, I was watching a Harry Chapin documentary <laughs> last night, which was fascinating. I, I was unbelievable. It was so good I couldn't finish it. But go ahead. Where are you going? I, I was going to say, I mean, I've watched the first three episodes of The Sopranos uh, yeah. recently here, and, and I've got some thoughts. Um, it's interesting. And I kind of like the setup of Tony sit, sitting with the psychiatrist to kind of help set the table here. But I would say that overall, I just feel bad for Carmela. I mean, she's got Tony yeah. doing God knows what. She's getting beat down by Meadow. I mean, it's just oh, like yeah. she's getting it from all angles early on. Now, it's early on. We'll see how things change. It don't, so don't get much better for I'm Carmella. Like, I'm like, it's man, get... poor Carmella. Well, wait a minute. Wait, wait, what do you meet poor AJ? I mean, if there's more, if there's, <laughs> there's a worse human being in the world moving forward is AJ. You know, and they say boys are easier to raise than girls, which I've been appreciative to have two boys. But, no, it, it's only going to get the, be, the best. I think the best one, you just saw the best scene. is The best scene of the three episodes you've seen is when Chrissy's leaving the hospital mm-hmm. with, his, with his neck roll and Adriana picks him up. And they meet out in front, and she's like, is it true? And then in that classic New Jersey tone, she asked him if he does number two in his pants. And it, it, to me, it's just like, that's so perfect. It's the comedy, it's the comedy within reality. Also, yeah, Chris is a knucklehead, and his little oh, bu- his, his little bu- buddy Brandon. I, I was not too sad to see him get whacked there. Gonna, yeah. but, I mean, you don't yeah. want to mess with Uncle Junior. We learn. You'll learn that. You'll learn that later, and you'll learn that in the in the in the prequel when it comes up. So I won't spoil anything for you. Yeah, yeah. No, no spoilers here. Although this is a series that is more than two decades old, but we're going along here with the uh, with the Sopranos going on. Like I said, my goal is to make sure I've watched the entire series by the time we get to the NFL season. So we're off to a good start here. First few episodes was really entertained there. But uh, yeah, I, th- there was some characters that just had no redeemable qualities, and I just felt bad. <laughs> for Carmella they're just taking they it from better. all they, they, it's not like succession there's nobody on succession if you ever watch <laughs> that show that you like there's no one there they're, they're all unlikable there but this one there is some light and, and Carmella has the the one lady saying that yeah I, I slept with Tony back in the day like like, like, what's, yeah. like she's just getting it from that's all angles that's Artie Bucco's wife Charmaine she's a complete bitch and the complete you know she's one you just ignore <laughs> But please do not ignore us. And that concludes it for the podcast this week here. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review as always wherever you get your podcast. Thank you to DraftKings. Thank you to Visa. Michael, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you to our producer, Stephen Bond, on the ones and twos. Yeah, great work to you as well. And we'll uh, talk next week.